Welcome to a special breaking news edition of The Early Advantage. When big news happens, we jump on it. Uh, China is a particularly uh, near and dear topic to, to my own heart. Uh, I've spent 10 years doing cross-border business with China and with Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, which China is reacting strongly to. Uh, we've got a lot of news, uh, not just political news, but economic news. And I'm joined today again by uh, Bob Buterma, COO excuse me, of SubChina, soon to be known as the China Project. Bob lived nine years in China. He is definitely a China expert, more so than I am by far. And he's here to chat with me, not just an interview per se, but kind of a discussion as well about what this means, your backstory. Uh, why is it so important? Um, the importance of the domestic audience in China. I think a lot of Westerners don't really know much about that. And then finally, what are the long-term economic ramifications of this? China is reacting already. I, I doubt that will be the only reaction we will see from them. So, Bob, first of all, welcome and thanks for joining us again. Yeah, no, it's great to be back. And I'm looking forward to continuing our discussion from last time. Great. So so let me pick up where I, I think uh, we could help the most. A lot of people in the West uh, look at this. They say, hey, hey Taiwan was uh, is self-governing. It's doing great. I mean, it, it's obviously technologically far ahead of China, or at least traditionally was, uh, because it was democratic. Um, CCP has never controlled Taiwan, but yet they keep talking about reunification, and it's this lightning rod. It's this really important thing for them. Um, can you unpack a little bit uh, about, like, I mean, without getting overtly political, like, why, why is this so significant to uh, the People's Republic of China? Sure. I'm going to give the super simple version of the story there's like the simple complex super complex uber complex i mean the, the, it's a very long you've story got it all broken down and turns. <laughs> yeah there's just a lot of history baked in here and, and there is no way we could do it justice on this show or that i could even do it justice with with my knowledge you'd need a historian for that but i'll give you the simple version the, the simple version is that china was going through a civil war uh, in various shapes and forms throughout much of the early 1900s and into the 1930s and 40s during World War I. And uh, America and other European powers were in China or around China at the time. This was following Japanese uh, rule of China, which was very uncomfortable for China. And as, it all, as all the cards kind of started to fall into place at the end of all of these conflicts, China still had not resolved its internal civil war. Who would take control? The KMT, the Kuomintang, or the, uh, the communists? And it was a pretty bitter fight that they sometimes put on hold to worry about the Japanese or to you know, uh, collaborate with other foreign powers against the Japanese and other things like that. But as all the cards started to fall into place, this still wasn't resolved. And basically, the KMT party fled to the island of Taiwan. And depending on who you ask, either China was unable or uninterested in pursuing them further at the time and sort of left it unresolved with them on the island, or America and other countries actually prevented mainland China, the communists, from going after them right away to you know, end the civil war at that time. And it kind of got frozen in that state from then on until now, basically. And in China's view, it's an unresolved internal civil civil conflict, civil war. They don't call it a war anymore. They they you know, so just to be clear, China doesn't think it's at war with Taiwan, but it is the remnant of an unresolved civil war from that time. 
and they want it back. It would be as if part of the South had somehow escaped reunification in the United States after the Civil War. You know, we would want it back and China wants it back and they, they view it as never having really left. And so for them, it's deeply emotional. And the last thing I'll say is that this also carries a lot of symbolic weight in addition to just the objective, like that used to be ours, then it wasn't for these certain reasons. And like, it kind of still is. There's a lot of baggage because remember, this was coming at the end of a really brutal occupation by the Japanese, a really uh, humiliating, if not brutal uh, occupation of various port and, and coastal areas by other foreign powers, such as the Dutch and the Germans and the British and the Americans. And, you know, so for them to protect their maximum territorial integrity and border, it has a much more visceral importance than it does to anyone in America whose borders have never been meaningfully penetrated by a foreign power. So it, it's really important to them both concretely and objectively, but even more so spiritually. Got it. Got it. And obviously, you know, Taiwan or it used to be Taiwan, People's Republic of China, or, you know, they, they or, or Republic of China, sorry, they, they kind of see themselves as part of the real China, not necessarily the, the communist China to make it more confusing. Um, and, and obviously in, in studies, the, the, the Taiwanese people obviously adamantly do not want to be part of communist China. And, and so there's, there's the friction that we have right now. Um, let me shift to topic number two. When I checked uh, what's called my, my friend circle, Pongyo Chan, on, on, on WeChat and the Chinese social media, I see a lot of almost frighteningly angry people, uh, angry that, that China didn't shoot down Nancy Pelosi's plane. Um, and, you know, I think many of us, even those in China, many in China are, are glad that didn't happen. Um, but I think what a lot of the people in the West don't understand is like the, the internal narrative, how important that is in, in China. I mean, Xi Jinping is coming up on the 20th Party Congress where he'll presumably get rubber stamped again. Um, you know, but he wants he wants stability at a time now when, you know, there have been this mortgage crisis. You know, there have been people protesting. Uh, you know, there's covid lockdowns. There's a lot of drama uh, this year, in particular in China. And, and I'm sure Xi does not uh, love that. And, and the last thing he wants is even more drama. Um, and so it seems like they're, he's walking a tightrope or the government is walking a tightrope. They have to respond. They want to respond strongly enough to, to placate their domestic audience, many of whom are critical already of of the lack of military response. But they don't want to overplay their hand, I guess, at a time when their credibility seems to be uh, dropping on the international stage. Would you would you would you agree that that's what's happening? Um, and, and maybe could you elaborate on on how you think? they're trying to cater like what's the importance of the international crowd sending a signal to Beijing, to, to to the US sending a signal to Taiwan the international community versus sending a signal to their own people I agree with parts of what you said and I disagree with others um or if not disagree then I have other uh, perspectives as well uh I'll start with the parts that I I'd like to add to kind of alternate to what you said is the reaction of the Chinese population I'm sure there are people saying that they wish that their government had shot down the plane or otherwise taken stronger reactions, but you can go to supchina.com, S-U-P-C-H-I-N-A.com and read some other stuff we've put out uh, in the past 24 hours and that we're going to put out later today. There's at least as many, if not way more people on the Chinese internet 
saying that they wish this wasn't such a big deal and that they're glad they didn't go to war. And why should we go to war for this? And why don't we spend the money on things that we need more importantly at home, such as domestic economic development? There's still hundreds of millions of people in China who have not joined the modern lifestyle, so to speak, still living in extremely rural, if not impoverished, extremely rural and kind of underserviced areas. So there's a lot of China that really does not want war. And I'm glad you said that. I'm uh, glad you're clarifying that. Yeah. No. And and there's definitely people also saying they should shoot the plane down. By the way, there's probably like a bunch of Republicans in America saying that they wish that China had shot the plane down. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, there, there's uh, haters everywhere and, and they're going to hate. So, um, yeah, I, I think that the Chinese Internet is fairly mixed about it all. I will say it is a huge deal in China. And despite you know, the perception that China can control or totally shut down news narratives on their internet. That's not always exactly true. And there's been reports this morning of a lot of their internet platforms, quote unquote, breaking because of the volume of activity and then the counter volume of like control and uh, suppression trying to go on. It's a big topic. People know what's going on. They're very curious about it. Now, you pointed out something else that I do agree with, which is uh, the the focus on the domestic narrative being very important. And how does this all kind of go together uh, to inform the CCP's decision making? The domestic narrative is ultimately going to be the most important to almost any government in the world. And that's probably more true of China's government than our own government in the U.S. That may be counterintuitive. When we think of them as a single party authoritarian state with really no risk of ever being taken out of power. And yet, at the same time, they preside over a population of 1.4 billion extremely ambitious, active people who go along with the current political system because it works, because it has been working, because every year is better than last year for like almost everyone in China. And the moment that's not true anymore, they've got a big problem. In the United States, we have various relief valves or on, on pressure in the societal and political system. They're called elections. They happen locally. They happen regionally, statewide, and, and of course, nationally. Um, if you're really frustrated, there's things you can do about it, concrete things that actually work. Now, they may not be like as awesome as we we want them to be like we get a new president and does everything change usually not but nonetheless there is a process and a system and a culture of enacting change um, under controlled circumstances and you don't exactly have that in china and so if the pressure builds up in their societal and political system they don't have the same release valves unless those valves are you know opened by the government which is to say they have to be very responsive to the pressure in the system, because if they're not, that pressure will equalize eventually one way or the other. And so with that in mind, I think the CCP is very accountable to its population and is extremely focused on getting this right. At the same time, we have to remember that the CCP is genuinely ideologically oriented. They have very strong views on things. They enshrine them in doctrine after doctrine and policy paper after policy paper. Every five years, they have a five-year plan, and and uh, you know every so often they have big you know massive shifts in their official thinking. And if you look historically, they've got an immense track record of doing exactly what they said they would do.
And they view Taiwan as theirs. They're not totally off the mark because the U.S. has signed tons of bilateral documents and issued communiques and other statements basically reinforcing the status quo of the Taiwan situation, the status quo being that it um, kind of metaphysically belongs to China in the super long run, just that it won't be reunified violently, but that it does it is part of China. There is one China, the one China policy. The U.S. supports that. China is going to defend that because they, they, they're going to go to the mat for anything that they put their name to. They're not going to say something and then just sort of like cave if it's getting really difficult. Not going to happen. Interesting. Interesting. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know that I personally would use the word, you know, very ideological when, when talking about the CCP, but I guess that's an interesting way to say it. I mean, maybe around certain topics they are, um, you know, they're, they're very pragmatic in other ways too. I think we could agree. Um, one thing that's trending now on, on social media, literally moments ago is China's final warning, um, which is, has here a Russian proverb, uh, referring to a warning that carries no real consequences, you know? Uh, and I think, I think this is kind of touching on uh, a reputation China has for big talk, you know, and I think it goes both ways. It goes for warnings and probably also goes for promises like we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And then it doesn't really happen. Um, and, and so, you know, the the more militant crowd, the, the, the stronger, the fervent nationalists may be angry that, that Pelosi's plane didn't get shot down. I think you're absolutely right that there are a lot of people who were not 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 angry at all and, and and are glad that that war hasn't happened but if we turn our attention to to the response what we've seen so far and, and pardon my notes here um you know before pelosi even landed they i think banned 100 different imports from taiwan um they're planning a bunch of live fire drills and and people are sharing the maps on 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 wechat now um you know hopefully they're just going to be drills and, and not any actual attacks, restricting some dealings with uh, Taiwanese companies. Apparently, cyber attacks from China to Taiwan are up uh, 200 fold, something like that. Uh, all this so far is, uh, well, I mean, sorry, economic stuff actually has bite. So far, the military actions are more kind of a, a parade, a theater. They're not actually literal attacks. Um, at least in my belief, I don't think we're going to see actual attacks. But what do you think, Bob, as far as what do you think we'll see beyond this, especially uh, how does this affect the long term calculus of of U.S. China uh, relations, economic relations? They seem to be picking on on Taiwan right now when maybe they really want to attack the U.S. because the U.S. is the one who I mean, it was Pelosi who came. It wasn't really all Taiwan's fault, but Taiwan is probably the easier target. But will this circle back to direct ramifications of the U.S.? Uh, that's an interesting question. It is good to note that all of the official statements and actions and implied actions of the past 24 hours have been directed at Taiwan, not at the U.S. And I think the long game that they're playing there is to try to influence domestic Taiwanese attitudes towards the issue. The real problem won't be that the U.S. does – like the U.S. won't attack China to enforce Taiwan's independence proactively. The, the, the two catalysts would be China goes for Taiwan or Taiwan declares 
a higher level of independence, like officially, and breaks with all the one China policies. And yeah, because they haven't actually declared themselves independent. I mean, just for you know, people new to this, they've never actually said we are independent. I mean, they're they are independent effectively. They're self governed, but they've never just come out and said it. And obviously, the U.S. has which U.S. agreed to abide by the one China policy as a way to to basically start engagement with China, uh, you know, uh, you know, 40 something years ago, 50 years ago now, roughly something like that. Um, or 1979, I think it was officially. Right. Um, so, so it's it's not an officially independent thing in a declaration sense, but in a practical sense, it is. Correct. Practically, they govern themselves and there's almost no direct interaction between the governments of Taiwan and China. But, yeah, not neither party has. Uh, called the thing off. They both view themselves as the rightful government of China and that China is one China. So it's an interesting situation in that regard. But um, I I think that China may be trying to influence or remind the Taiwanese uh, about how they choose to feel about this over the medium to long run. Um, Whether there will be direct actions against the U.S., I'd say 50-50. It seems inevitable that they would need to do something that they would have to do something because of the immense level of attention on this issue globally and needing to remind people that they are not pushovers. At the same time, they have the stomach to endure a lot of uh, a lot of anything, really. And so maybe they look at this and they say, you know what? We're going to do something no one saw coming five or eight years from now. And I don't mean war, by the way. I just mean like something like, or, or we're so confident that we're going to win this game on a five to 20 year timeline that we don't need to do anything right now. Maybe their way to proudly assert their, uh, their forcefulness in this is to not do something. You know, the bigger man walks away, as we would say in a bar fight, you know, and, and I think that's a real possibility, but I think it's 50, 50, um, I, I mean, think you think that, Xi would do that? I mean, going into this Congress, you think you think he'd be patient enough to take a long game? Uh, given, I, I think that right? he might. I mean, because, you know, you mentioned something a minute ago. I forget exactly how you worded it. But, you know, you, you basically said, are, do they actually want to come for the U.S. instead of going for China? And I don't think, at least before this happened, that they wanted to come for the U.S. They may have to as a response to this situation. Pelosi going there does raise the specter of us breaking the one China policy. That would be a a deal breaker. They would not – China would not not feel like it had any decisions left if we broke the one China policy unilaterally or if Taiwan did and we supported them. China would say, hey, this is out of our hands now. We're going to respond in the worst way possible. That's part of our country. We've all agreed that for decades, and that's not changing. So Pelosi going there raises the specter of that happening. They may have to do something economically against the U.S. now. I do not think that they wanted to do that before this happened and that this has just provided them an excuse. They have nothing to gain from that. However dependent our economy is on them, their economy is at least as dependent on us and the global economy at large and the financial systems and flows of capital and trade and political goodwill and deal-making and technology, they do not want to mess that up. They have been the greatest beneficiaries of the past 40 or 50 years of globalization. Especially the technology. Yeah, they don't want to trash that situation unless they feel like they have to 
for uh, higher order interests in like, you know, uh, what's that guy's name? Like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Hierarchy of you, needs, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, like if, if, if they feel like their higher level needs are being threatened, yeah, e- economy's out the window. Most countries beh- would do the same thing. And I think that's where China's coming from on this. They want the status quo economic order to continue. It benefits them a lot. Yeah, I think, you know, usually, at least I think of China as very pragmatic, but but for Taiwan especially, just going back to how we started this, the, the Taiwan thing, I mean, besides what it is itself, it's almost taken on this life of this internal symbol of, of you know, just some special importance, like this is China's, this, this, when we, you know, bring Taiwan back to China, this will kind of uh, redeem us from the century of humiliation, which they're talking about, which sort of took on a bigger role, I think, after Tiananmen Square in terms of the education. So a lot of the younger Chinese are much more fervent about this than the Chinese who are, you know, 40, 45, 50, 55 years old. Um, you know, that they have different uh, beliefs. It's it's, uh, it's quite different beliefs, at least. And I know that's stereotypical, but but it's it's been a consistent experience for me. Um, so anyway, it's, it's kind of become this lightning rod, uh, a symbol of so many things beyond just a, a practical matter. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know where this goes from here, but I, I guess my thought is in, in, in five years, in five years, um, my prediction, I think this kind of stuff, and I'd welcome your thoughts on this, Bob, but, but I, I feel like uh, these sorts of things c- can take a generation to change. Uh, I would be shocked. If, if U.S.-China relations, for example, or, or China relations with the rest of the world were meaningfully better in five years, I'd almost, you know, I'd bet 80, 85 percent chance they're going to be meaningfully worse. Uh, and on, on one level, China doesn't care about that, you could argue, because their main audience is internal. But on another level, for, for the reasons you just so eloquently espoused, you know, China is is connected to the world and it's really hard to go back. And, and if they become too disconnected, uh, they're going to have internal problems also. And that's something they certainly care about. So I feel like the Chinese leadership is probably wa- very, very stressed right now, I'd imagine, walking a tightrope for exactly how they should respond. Would you, would you agree with that? I do agree that their government is walking a tightrope, but it's a much more complex tightrope than just the Taiwan issue presents. They've got their domestic economy, which if you've been following along closely, which I know you have, but hopefully your listeners have been as well, is not exactly teetering, but there's things shifting deep under the surface (laughs) that uh, we can sense, but maybe even they don't really know how serious of a thing it may be. I'm talking about the real estate sector and uh, the uh, consumer sector, the internet giant uh, kind of e-commerce revenue numbers aren't looking so good right now. And, um, you know, just, just remember when we talk about the real estate sector, that's like, I forget the number and I may get this wrong, but it's something like 25 or 30% of their economic growth over the, the past yeah. couple long periods of time have come from that and the manufacturing and materials and logistics and everything that go into the real estate sector. Uh, You you know, those things are all shifting under their feet right now. Then you've got the Russia situation, which has reinforced Western slash global uh, ideology, 
to use that word again, for lack of a better term, uh, most countries were, it, it, most developed countries were willing to quote unquote pick a side and even uh, sacrifice something uh, to defend those ideas. So China's got a rapidly changing internal and external situation. And then you add basically the single most intense conflict um, in their history. And, and if you'd asked me a year ago what I said the single uh, most volatile fault line was in the global world order, I might have picked this one, even though at that time it was still very latent. Uh, it, it's all kind of happening at once. And, and uh, I, I do not envy the CCP uh, for the decisions they have to make right now. Do you think this may be a tricky question? You don't have to answer it, but do you think we've seen peak China already as far as global influence? Hmm. I think to say that we've seen peak China would be an oversimplification and unlikely to be true. I think there's a 25% chance that there's the Japanification of China, as some people call it. They start to get dragged down by the demographic issues that you and I discussed last time, and their economy grows, but never in a way that allows them to truly break out from their current position and break out in their relative position against the U.S. 25% chance, I guess, that that happens and that they just sort of uh, go silently into that good night, to use a literary term, and just kind of keep on being themselves, but in this new kind of tamped down status. There's a 75% chance that it's not that. And when I say not that, I guess it could be many things then. So I won't try to break down that 75% or describe it in great detail, other than to say that influence doesn't have to look like what it has looked like for the past 20 or 30 or 40 years. It doesn't have to look like becoming everybody's biggest trading partner or becoming the engine of global consumer spending growth over the past 10 or 20 years. It, it might look like other things. It might look more like Russian influence has looked the past 10 or 20 years in terms of uh, security packs and arms deals and also peacekeeping missions and other kind of diplomacy that are nonetheless organized parallel to the Western-led versions of those same things. I mean, when we talk about arms deals, you know, that sounds dirty, but don't forget, like the U.S. and France and uh, England and no, all and, the time we're, we're yeah, doing yeah. huge arms deals every day just with our chosen partners. And so to say that Russia deals arms or China deals arms, it sounds really bad. Like, oh, they're morally wrong for doing that. I don't mean it that way. I just mean that they'll be doing the same things we do uh, with different people or in different ways or under different circumstances. And that that's a lot of influence, too. And their economic influence won't get less. It may not continue to grow, but I don't think it will get less. They are the largest trading partner to 160 or so of the 230 or so countries in the world. I don't think that's going to change. You're not going to get electric heated blankets and toasters manufactured in America ever. Like I don't think we will ever get them from America, let alone become an exporter of those things to the rest of the world. So where is everyone going to get their stuff? It's probably going to be China. And if it's not China, look at the supply chains in other countries like Vietnam, Indonesia, Philippines that have been benefiting from some of the exodus from China manufacturing. 
it's actually Chinese companies opening up factories in those other countries. And then we just source from Chinese countries, man, uh, Chinese companies manufacturing outside of China because they've got all the know-how and the expertise. And so even when we leave China, we're not always leaving China behind, so to speak. And, and you know, so the, the long story short on on that is I don't think their influence will get less. I think it's very likely it gets greater. It doesn't have to look just like it has the past 40 years. Like they get better and better at everything until they are better than us. It doesn't mean that. It just means that they, they're not going away and they're uh, an amazing, large, powerful country. I think that's a fair point. And even even aside from economics and foreign policy, you could argue, I mean, the, the stereotype is, is China's foreign policy to date has been criticized as being pretty ham-fisted, unsophisticated, you know, China's its own worst enemy half the time um, is just a clumsy or wolf warrior-ish making enemies. And it, maybe that's been true so far, but that might not always be true. And, and if that changes as they get more sophisticated, uh, they could exert power, uh, you know, they could start punching more closer to their weight. Uh, even I don't think they are now. Um, they could start punching closer to their weight, even if their economy, because the demographics uh, kind of, kind of, uh, goes into a, a lower gear. So, Correct. Uh, Bob Wittrimmer, you were insightful today, as always. It's always a pleasure to talk uh, with someone as familiar with China as you are. Thank you very much. I, I know I appreciate it, and I think those watching at home appreciated it as well. So, so thanks again for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. See you soon.